Take a commonplace, clean it and polish it. Light it so that it produces the same effect of youth and freshness and originality and spontaneity as it did originally, and you have done a poet's job. The rest is literature. Jean Cocteau, The Rest is Literature. When Cocteau was a young boy, he said he would be clever later. He said his father was a painter. Boys say a lot of things. His father was an amateur painter, a lawyer by trade. His father killed himself when Cocteau was nine. You are not what you do, after all. You are not your work. You are not your suicide. Poets only pretend to die. You are not even your art, but your art is the greatest reflection of self. Awaken from the reverie of your Orphic dream. Poet creates and never insists upon his poetry. He is a poet because what he makes sings with all his soul. When the editors of Cahiers du Cinema collectively disavowed the stagnant literary leaning, past and present of French cinema, they kept the masters in. Robert Bresson, Jean Renoir, and Jean Cocteau were anti-modernists, making movies that would be new forever. The masters suited the ethics of the Nouvelle Vague. Cocteau then embodied the past, present, the future of the French cinema. The rest, as the Cahiers crew would insist, is literature. L'amour peut faire qu'un homme devienne bête. L'amour peut faire aussi qu'un homme laid devienne beau. Children believe what we tell them. They have complete faith in us. They believe that a rose plucked from a garden can bring drama to a family. They believe that the hands of a human beast will smoke when he kills a victim, and that this beast will be shamed when confronted by a young girl. They believe in a thousand other simple things. I ask of you a little of this childlike simplicity, and to bring us luck, let me speak for truly magic words. Childhood's Open Sesame, Once Upon a Time. Our films include The Blood of a Poet, Beauty and the Beast, and The Eagle with Two Heads. The gem of today's triple feature, Beauty and the Beast, from 1946, is the pinnacle of fantasy storytelling in film, marrying Cocteau's multi-hyphenate interest in the poetic and the balletic the film achieves the beauty of a stage play with the heightened specificity of what it means to make a film. It provides an exceptional bridge to understanding his other work, his varied interests and grounding in 20s era surrealism with a literary bent. Today we draw back the curtain on a life lived in the arts and celebrate three pieces of a storied career of a real master craftsman. First, we venture into the blood of a poet perhaps the first poem film to make headway with an international audience. Because it is first, it can disregard histories, examples, and rule books. It is permitted to tell its own story uniquely in the text. Cocteau wrote, To sum up, The Blood of a Poet 
and my new film, Beauty of the Beast, are aimed at the aficionados. It is true that I do not kill the bull according to the rules, but this contempt for the rules is accompanied by a contempt for the danger that excites a large number of people. Poetic art is creation with regards to space and feeling, moved by the dance of the human spirit and unconcerned with the linearity of rules. Poetry begins to atrophy when it gets too far from the music, Ezra Pound said, like the myth of Orpheus who could soothe all animals and nature with his poetry of music, the film is equally connected. It has no false symbols or ornamentation that does not add punctuation. It doesn't have to mean anything, it just is. Crucially, composer George Arak is involved, who would score 11 films for Cocteau. His score is a remnant of his avant-garde period and thus embodies and directs the film with its certainty of purpose. His later works would become more populous as he worked hard to square his work with leftist political beliefs that could actually reach audiences. George Arc's compositions are a fundamental through-line between the three distinctly different films. In Beauty and the Beast and The Eagle with Two Heads, Cocteau has likewise found a more connective, populist style, while the films begin to subscribe to the director's own rulebook and definitions without relying on the past. They use familiar constructions and foundations to wildly different ends. Both are wondrously shot, the camera glides, the black and white is silver in its glow, the steady beauty of it all is overwhelming, singular, well-considered, and yet, with accessibility, Cocteau remains poetic. His films still move smoothly over uncovered terrain and define the fairy tale and romantic stories in ways they have simply never been visualized before. His astute gift for defining the image with his camera and getting the most out of untrained actors pays dividends. The poetry sings. The films move with singular beauty. Open sesame. Them movies are poems, all right. Cocteau has done a poet's job. The rest is literature. Welcome back to The Twin Geeks uh, 154 here with Stephen and David. Um, Stephen, welcome back to the show. Hello. Well, well, welcome to the new show, which is very, very exciting. And yeah. welcome back to the old show, I guess. We yes, have, uh, have to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We've prepared a quiz on uh, another US holiday. For no. <laughs> <laughs> is there a US holiday right now? I don't know. I don't know. I, you Probably. Probably. It's probably true. Uh, we yeah. haven't prepared one, but uh, last time you were on, you were on with the uh, our friend yes. yes 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 one of the final episodes of the final form before in the chrysalis we were mid chrysalis at that point um and now look at how we've flown and we're here with the cocktail we haven't we haven't done this it feels like it's been a long time since bogdanovich so it feels like we've done yeah. this already 
it's been it's been a little bit of a break uh the one week breaks we've been taking between directors but uh much needed break certainly after a big filmography like uh bogdanovich boy that was an undertaking sure was. yeah it was very good to listen to though i very much enjoyed it I, I, annoyingly so here's where it went at the beginning so i almost put off the first episode because i was like i should watch targets and last pitch shows so wanted to watch both of them for a while and then i just i just caved from the first day and i just listened to it mm-hmm. and every like day since i've been like i should just watch last picture show and then you're just like enthusiasm <laughs> or lack of that film just came so bad from the point i'm like maybe i shouldn't watch last picture show and now i feel like it's just like it just feels like homework to me now which it never did before it's like oh a great movie i need to watch and i'm like oh i guess i'll watch last picture show that movie that i have to watch but it's probably bad so thank you for that that's the gift that you've given me no 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 i'm i'm, I'm disappointed by that you definitely should watch last picture show no i know i know i have the duty a... to watch last picture no show. no not even out of duty i think it's a, it's a genuinely great film that's just not as nah. entertaining. I know, I know. Calvin's over here. You know, he's he feels comfortable taking this. Have you have you seen a, a saintly switch? No, I need to watch Captain Jack or whatever it is first. Okay. There, there was a lot of interesting discoveries there, which is uh, what I'm hoping this. You know, the, again, this is what this whole uh, venture has been about. This whole change yeah. in programming. So that was a, a, a very fun time doing that. And despite the smaller filmography we've got here with Jean Cocteau. Mm. Uh, definitely looking forward to the ones that I that I haven't seen before because there's really uh, you know like people know a couple of films from him maybe yeah. like like three max I would say max max of three probably I think doing a trilogy helps I think when a filmmaker's made a trilogy <laughs> that usually gives you a three though I would say that maybe of the trilogy because obviously you've got the two with the Orpheus names in them mm-hmm. um, they're not as known I mean Orpheus is very very known um, Testament and maybe Blood of a Poet not as and obviously Beauty of the Beast is well known but has been somewhat I mean hugely overshadowed by the Disney animation and then weirdly overshadowed by the Disney live action remake of their own animation. I, yeah. I, I literally forgot that film existed until you brought yeah. it up now. Is so there one I, already? I almost watched it in preparation, just like just like King of the Monsters style, just being like, This is this is I will now I now only show that films are good by just tearing down tearing down bad movies. But mm-hmm. you know, it was it's two hours and ten minutes long. Too much. You know, the the nice thing about these cocktail films has been at least off the bat. They're they're mm. real brief. They're real easy to get in. That that uh, hour and a half Beauty and the Beast, love it. Fifty yes. minute Blood of a Poet, yeah, couldn't be better. It's a shame that the Two Headed Eagle, the Eagle of Two Heads, is about two hours long. But you know, yeah, well, it really cool. is a shame. <laughs> uh, well, by the way, uh, instead of uh, dancing around it, why don't we uh, get into these films? Then we'll start with uh, in 1930. You know, very, pretty early, I would say. Yeah, it's you know. It's, Still very early sound film here with Blood of Color. Mm. Yeah, uh, pretty early in the in the context of the movies that we've covered thus far are earliest yet. Um, uh, would you say it's a, an early example of poetic cinema? The earliest, some would say? This is really interesting to me. I, I oh God, I mean, to, to again, I, every time I speak, I'm just parodying myself. Um, but I, in one of my many reviews of a Hong Sang-soo movie, I talked about um, poetic cinema versus films as poetry um, and the difference of that, because I think it's very, very important because obviously it, it's, you know, poetic cinema obviously is Tarkovsky as our root, the term is used most often um, and is obviously applied beyond there. But it's usually, it's usually used to be like, you know, those pretty scenes from Solaris and Stalker or Nostalgia, I guess 
guess more so that's poetic cinema um so you've got films like not not that the lighthouse not the one that you love but the um i forget what eastern european country it's from and i really should know um but that film the lighthouse which is very much like tarkovsky influenced um and i think they're poetic in that sense if we use poetry well poetic purely as an adjective not as in to refer to poetry the thing which is sense that it gives you a sense of existentialism is what existential filmmaking and what i like about cocteau and what i like about some hong san su films is that when i i mean myself as a you know i would never claim i teach poetry that's a, another life i'll never bring up on a podcast but as someone that teaches poetry quite often um you get caught up in the technicality of it and the beauty of poetry i've been doing so in the english school exam system one of the things you have to do if this is the same in america is unseen poetry do you do that in america in your exams no poetry in exams. unseen poetry no. oh wow okay no. <laughs> so unseen poetry is, so part of the exam, we teach them a set of poems, but they also have to do an unseen poem. So there'll be a poem they've never seen before, and they will have to just answer a question on it. Because um, the idea is, once you've taught something about poetry, you can start to look for the transitive properties of a caesura usually kind of means this. So if you see a caesura, you know, okay, there's a pause in the line that often means this. This symbol usually means this. And for me, Cocteau's film, especially Love the Poet, feels like that of, we know what little tricks of cinema mean, and he is using the physicality of cinema, like what he can do with just like reversing the image, what he can do with just like tricks of focus, just sleight of hand stuff, like real physical stuff to use it like poetic devices of that it's going to have an external connotation or denotation. And that's what feels like poetry in his cinema. It feels like a set of rules used poetically as opposed to something that just is like, oh, it's existential. And sometimes I very much prefer that. Mm -hmm. And he wrote that piece for what was it Criterion? Was it was it on their service that he wrote it? But uh, it was republished there. And he wrote about maybe not calling himself surrealist and not calling himself poetic in a, a defined way uh, to throw out the rule book and kind of create your own terms and uh, watching it through a, a context without these labels attached to it so much um, because he is a multi hyphenate. You know, he's uh, working mm. in all different molds, and it's not essentially that he's making a film to do this mission. Um, it's that he watched like uh, like these very experimental early films, um, which you guys will get into, I think. And then he was like, okay, I could do something a little bit different and not follow the rules of what everyone else is making. And we don't have to define them so strictly and rigidly. In, in retrospect though, I'd definitely say he was probably the foremost surrealist we would consider in the, the landscape of cinema. Oh yeah, he was... Yeah. He was like hanging out with like Pablo Picasso and like the 20s surrealists themselves. So yeah. uh, I, I understand artists say don't label them, but uh, you're in that camp. So. Yeah, and I was doing some reading off. I mean, obviously, because you mentioned Picasso, I feel like obliged to mention that Picasso is, is a massive arsehole. I just can't let that go through without mentioning that. Um, fuck Picasso. Um, but um, I was reading around of um, the relationship with surrealism as a movement, because obviously surrealism as a description is different from surrealism as a movement, which is, comes as ridiculous art politics. But the surrealists, um, not a fan of Cocteau. I was trying to find out why. And it seems, seems the root, homophobia. Um, it seems uh, that yeah. some like pivotal members of the surrealist movement, um, I mean, Cocteau, who was a known bisexual, um, his relationships with men turned a lot of the surrealists against him, including like pivotal surrealists. Um, and there was actually some clear surrealist backlash to the blood of the blood of a poet um claiming that it was like a work of like surrealist plagiarism some of them denying that it was actually surrealism at all so yes it is definitely a surreal work but it's interesting that the surrealist art movement was like no no we do not want this um mm. because mostly homophobia it seems from my no. very cursory reading 
I know as well that the film of Boba Fett was delayed from release initially because of uh, similar backlash that was received mm. from the 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 Boonwell film from uh, the year before. Yeah, and it I, I was mean... it was commissioned by the the same folks there, uh, so it's hand in hand. Those came out and is that did well. Lodge, is that Lodge Door? Is this the time of Lodge Door? Yeah. Yeah, 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 which I watched recently actually, which is very very good. It's amazing. Um, um, mm. it, this went on to like international success. Well. Uh, this was kind of like a, as David says, uh, kind of like banned in its own territories. While Larry Store or however you say, but uh, was also very, um, what would you say, very censored, very criticized. Yeah, right yeah, away. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was that, there was that um, film about it recently. That I did not see. Um, been well in the labyrinth of the turtles, which was like about like the oh, yeah. controversial making of Large George. I needed to watch. It sounds like Calvin. Have you seen that? Like, I want to see it. I want to see it I as well. See we should watch it. Yeah. We should watch that. There you go. We should watch that as we go through <laughs> films about filmmakers. Yeah, but well, kept coming to mind when I mean I've I have seen quite a lot of Benwell. I don't know what your people's um, relationship with Benwell is. I presume similarly. Um, and for me, that seems to be like the clear contemporary, especially works like this. Um, actually, I, I mean, though to jump ahead, the third film we watched for this. Um, so I keep getting the name wrong. It's the, the Eagle with Two Heads. Yeah, so. or or the two-headed eagle. I think it's just a, like a translation thing. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, like, with I, two heads is the English title that's on the websites. Yeah, I keep yeah. swapping between, but there were like there were bits of that and the way it was that reminded me of some of the, like, the chamber pieces of Bunuel, like um, a bit of exterminating angel, but like stuck in the same place. No, very, very different, but the setup of it is is similar. So it's nice to have that kind of little dialogue with filmmakers. I, I adore uh, exterminating angel. Oh, because uh, it's awesome. That's why. Maybe if we did like a like the set that Criterion had. I don't think I'd do every Boone well for like the podcast, but mm. if we did ever focus on him, I'd, I'd choose a very uh, surrealist, yeah, yeah, a very surrealist selection. We don't have to go through all his Mexican and, you know, for, for profit works. Oh, but Simon in the that. Desert's real good, though. I like Simon in the Desert's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Welcome to the Boone well podcast, what we just yes. discussed. Yeah, yeah. Well films we've seen. You can tell by my silence. The Milky Way, huh? That, the Milky that, Way rules, right? <laughs> David, you love the Milky Way. You're always <laughs> talking about Diary of a Chambermaid. Boonwell is one of my bigger blind spots, certainly here. Uh, Would you get me? You know, I'm going to lean on you guys here for a bit more of the other uh, contemporary comparisons. Uh, but I, I was very excited to get into Cocteau because, of, you know, I, mm. I, I did have that affection for him, particularly his uh, artistry and approach to the filmmaking, yes. which, which really inspired me and reminded of a lot of, you know, kind of earlier filmmakers. You know, I, I mentioned that this film, uh, Blood of a Poet, it came like right at the beginning of the sound era, and it's because it's very, you know, reminiscent. It's still very much in the kind of language and style of, you know, mm. innovative, um, you know, art pieces of, of the silent era in particular. There's no dialogue uh, throughout it all. There's no, you know, uh, personal scene. There's just you know, intertitles and voiceover narration. And so it does feel like an extension of what films in the silent era were becoming with the kind of advent of sync sound, you know, uh, soundtracks that were added to the, you know, films and such with the likes of uh, Murnau Sunrise is, is, is an example mm. of, one of the primary ones. And so this felt like, you know, Blood of Poet felt like a, a continuation of what this kind of new, you know, art film was, uh, you know, being at that time before it kind of just fizzled out as, as sound, you know, the commercial appeal of that took over. 
which which to go back to my like point of like this film as poetry or like the art film as like art form as opposed to art film this time it very much feels like sound is yet another device to add to it here it's yeah. like what can we do with sound and it's like i mean again to again become to become pretentious like i i watched through all of ozu films um relatively recently like i finished them all quite recently and that included his surviving um silent movies and the thing i found watching ozu silent films a lot of them i didn't like very much even though i respected them because it felt like he was suffocated by not having sound yet even though it didn't exist yet because he wanted to make these things that were these clear narrative works um that were very about family dynamics and that just doesn't really work and then when he bursts into sound it all makes sense so i love that we've got films like these that it feels like they're not just like they don't feel dampened from the transition because the language of silent film the language of talkies is very very different even i mean you can hear one and not the other but the expression and what works so i really love films like this that do feel transitional but beautifully transitional of it's doing all the things that make silent cinema work as silent cinema but using sound as a how can we add to that and accentuate it and it is a beautiful result mm -hmm. because one of the, the big things that was kind of lost more like incrementally as time went on with the transition to you know full sound pictures is the use of physicality and the visual language as a means of communication with the audience and that is something that you see in beloved poet that cocktail really excels at and yeah. you know really uh amplifies from what was built before uh, i know in a personal exchange uh, steven you and i uh, immediately had a recollection with this film of the kind of trick films and fantasies of yes. uh another french director uh Méliès. and uh it's yeah, yeah, I, I think that he's really a, a true successor to, to Melies' legacy in, in that sense, and that how he innovates the, the form itself, not just the, the expression, but the literal approach to filmmaking and the way he his you know, he plays with the reverse footage like we talked about, or, you know, how he creates the, these kind of magic tricks, these literal, like, ideas of, of magic being rendered on screen, things that you, you couldn't conceive of in, in real life that can be done through film, through editing, through, you know, the, the, the magic of movies, you know, real, real mm. movie magic. Yeah, no, I, I wrote about that in my letterbox thing of like this this phrase of movie magic is like for me like usually it's like gloss Hollywood term being like it's the magic of the movies and like being in Hollywood but this film feels like magic like completely so of like I mean they render the a reminder that all magic really is just like tricks of the light and like nonsense and cinema being tricks of the light is just absolutely wonderful of how to use the physicality it is like seeing a magician on stage where you you kind of want to know how it's done but you love not knowing how it's done but you like knowing that it was done that it is a trick right it's, um, it's it's not the invisible uh, impossibility mm. of film. It's the very overt, you know, mm. and, and um, you know, kind of... Uh, Tactility. Yeah, yeah, the, the performative kind of, I, I guess, is, is that the word I'm looking for? I think so. Yeah, I mean, it, it it feels like. I mean, I remember I read a book on Japanese cinema recently, and it it talked about how um, Japanese cinema was almost very very different to the cinema we have now because, like, when it began, um, there was a different tradition of the benshi narrators who would speak over films, and film existed as performance of the thing in the background was just kind of like there, so they didn't really like, do cameras or anything, and it was the work of like Eisenstein and people and montage editing that led to the pure film movement, and that kind of like homogenized the film industry a bit into that direction, and here again you've got the what can we do with things like what can we do tactically with like the physicality of film to make it utterly fascinating and the melier thing is is like so spot on for me like one of the i mean maybe the greatest film ever made like the merry frolics of satan because it's just also the greatest title for any film ever made of just like 
just watching a film from so long ago and just seeing the things that are done and it being like, this is utterly incredible to see on screen. And because you know it was done and you know it was done through like analog technology in a way that like someone really had to work out a thing and it's an actual trick as opposed to, I mean, and I love CGI. CGI is very important, but there seems to be a difference between I imagined it because a computer can, the, the brain mass of a computer can work it out as opposed to how do we use pulleys and levers and lights and just like exposure to make something wonderful. Also, to go back to um, one of our favourite words around here, a reminder that um, the Meliers put out a film with the word Davenport in the title and Davenport is an inherently funny word. There's a, there's a lot to it. Uh, John Cocteau had a, a cinema dentist block, a little theatre, and they showed a lot of George Melier. So before he began in the film, he was watching a lot of his shorts and uh, clearly he understood and uh, and took a lot from those as like a lifelong influence in his work. So he's literally extremely influenced by Melier as far as getting into film and, and why he would go make one. That's mm. really incredible to, to know as well because you, you always hear about the, the influence of Millie's, but but so much further down the road, yeah. not necessarily in terms of the the preceding generation, you know, as the kind of inheritors, uh, and and particularly I think I uh, because we associate French cinema so much, I think normally with the Nouvelle Vague, uh, yeah. this, this kind of more fantastical cinema, this distinctly unreal, you know, uh, kind of uh, filmmaking is less highlighted, and so to to see that legacy echoed, you know, from Millie's to Cocteau. Uh, I think it's a, a really great, you know, point of influence to draw and, and connect there. It's it's funny because like the uh, Cahiers guys, they were like looking at like these past works and they they threw out so much of the French cinema, mm -hmm. but especially Blood of the Poet and uh, uh, some of uh, Cocteau's other short works weren't necessarily accessible to them. So they uh, highlighted Orpheus as like the one that they could raise up and, and uh, include some of those values David's talking about. And uh, that's that's the one they chose to highlight and they kind of circled around. Uh, otherwise, they went, as David says, extremely uh, realistic, uh, uh, grounded, uh, non-literary. Really, it's really interesting because I, I don't know like how much you're into that era of, of French film. But I mean, my, myself with like my family's links with France, I'm like very, very fascinated with it. It's like, been a big connection point with my father and I about like a, a love of French cinema of like of how just I mean the new wave was was so creative but also so destructive um looking backwards of that sense of like throwing out a cannon before and like and now we very much celebrate like Jean Renoir as like a huge filmmaker we've got them at the time being like no this is boring stuffy French film I mean I know that we're Ken Russell fans here um mm -hmm. and I go back to the quote that Ken Russell used to say of what his mom would call like a British picture of like polite well-to-do little like have a cup of tea with the vicar kind of movies like kitchen sink drama stuff and it seems like the cat here people was like ah you know french cinema has become like bourgeois and blah blah, blah. even when like people like genre are actually making quite politically interesting movies but they're not formally interesting and then you've got cocteau just like 20 years earlier doing things as inventive as as the new wave and like being i mean i was talking to youtube earlier i mean and you've not watched as much resume as i have watched and i'm always sure i'm saying that name wrong of all of the french new wave people mm -hmm. but i feel like especially um his work of marion bad is like the most like cocteau work going into the future um and then to find out that he then later did like an orpheus themed film it's like oh there you go well resume is very much carrying the torch for cocteau hiroshima mon amour as well as again like these like looping dialogue and strangeness of just like the aneric is the word that kept going back the dreamlike states of cocteau still harnessed in cinema So, Blood of a Poet in particular, do you guys yes. want to, like, 
break down what exactly the film is because it's a little <laughs> what is it David? it's a it's a four-parter with with mm-hmm. a, a lot of bodily movement um mm-hmm. uh uh movement that's balletic i think it ties into uh Cocteau's love of ballet and uh, a form of uh, movement and expression interpretive dance and uh, all that stuff uh, uh again multi-hyphenate and he's combining his poetry mm-hmm. with the uh, movement which i always thought was the essential part of poetry anyway it's, it's interesting to me how disparate and yet inherently linked all four of the parts are. It's, yeah. it's not exactly like different, like, like vignettes, but it's still, you know, bisected. So in, in such a way that it's, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a, a disconnect between each, but still connective elements and, you know, the kind of a <clears throat> overall through line that weaves through the, the whole of it. And yet it's still something that, again, it, it, uh, I think in a very kind of dreamlike, very characteristic and poetic way that's, that makes the film very hard to describe mm. uh, as uh, uh, in, in a wider context as opposed to some of the other ones which have a more concrete and descriptive narrative that you can latch on to. I think free associative imagery is actually very, very difficult um, in that sense of it's it's so easy for films to just feel absolutely random. Um, and it's that thing that I think has been more recently best than like people like Lynch of the idea of like, how do you make things seem actually dreamlike and unconnected while still being deeply, deeply connected? And one of my favourite things when watching like a surreal work or a weird or strange work is that sense of, I don't know if I understand this, but it feels like it comes from a point where somebody understands this. Like, it feels like Cocteau is completely in charge of what's going on. It's like he knows what it means. Now, I don't need to know what it means, but I can follow the sensations. I can get my own meaning out of it. That sense of, like, someone is in control of it somewhere is really potent to me, even if it doesn't, like, create, like, pure coherence because you don't want pure coherence you don't want it to be like and there you go this happens this happens this happens that sense of background sense is so important and it goes back to him of like talking about the poetry in it and the poetry kind of like starting to dominate him and speak out of him and like imprison him that sense of him being imprisoned by his own imagination at points is very very potent very very interesting and it feels I mean, and we know like connections to like the psychoanalytic movement, but it, like, it has like, those kind of like Freudian rhythms of like being into the subconscious in a way that is just really appealing. It's such a cool film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, just on like a very surface level, one of the things that I really yeah. love about it is, and, and this kind of extends to a lot of his works, his wider ones as well, is just the, the transportive quality that it has, particularly in the in the first two parts. Like it, it really feels like a fantasy come to life in and it's some of like just the small innovative tricks that that cocteau uses to just up upend things while still making it look relatively normal like you know when uh the the, the main artist character uh enters into the, the the mirror world there and it's you you see him struggling just to kind of walk across the room because the room is inverted it's, yes, you know, like, like he's he's got his back up against the wall, which they've made, um, you know, which is the floor. Effectively, they've just they do that again in Orpheus. I think there's yeah. a bit of like climbing in Orpheus, which like brings that back in. I was like, oh yeah, I love this. I love it so much. I think that there, Christopher Nolan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To be fair, there, there's a lot of tricks that uh, he, you know, Cocteau first implements here that he then you know revives for his next Orpheus film. You know, which makes perfect sense you know as, as a kind of you know successor to that um although i will say this one feels distinctly less like the orpheus story that i know yeah. 
than than his other one, which is very much a kind of modern day, you know, adaptation. But anyway, uh, the just that small trick of like inverting, you know, the, the or, or you know, just moving the room like a you know uh, ninety degrees effectively, uh, gives it this very distinctly unreal feeling while still looking, you know, normal, you know, more or less. Uh, you know, it's just it's a person moving across a room. You see the doors there. Uh, but it it just it, it entirely changes how the movement itself works because he's fighting against gravity in a totally different way. And so while everything appears normal on the surface, the distinct oddity of the movement makes the whole thing feel more surreal, more unreal. And the exaggerated movement of the act, it, it's such a great physical performance there as well, because like he does a really good job of like contorting his body in a way that obfuscates like the very obvious thing and they flipped it around so he mm. goes out his way to move in like atypical ways that because like sometimes when there's there's a great monty python sketch of people climbing up a pavement and it's like it's there's like a news reporter like talking over it and it's so clear that it's just like it fools you for like 10 seconds then you just know it because the ways they're moving but the actor here does a really good performance of convincingly moving like someone who is being trapped and move around you don't just go oh yeah no he's just walking on the floor and the floor's there it's really good physical work yeah and again it's all in service of making this realm that he's entered in feel connected to our own like tangible and 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 viable but distinctly un unreal like uh, unlike what we exist within such genius to use the metallic liquid to signify a mirror which he, mm. he uses again in the beauty and the beast which uh, she crosses through it and it looks it looks so magical and it's all like his films are always like that that handshake between like part illusion part reality and like that that middle ground of finding like a recognizable things and shapes and and people and movements in a complex surrealistic worlds it's a, a very interesting vision that he has that's very specific there there was another moment that stood out to me very you know sharply in uh, blood of a poet and that was the moment with the uh hermaphrodite that he comes across and it was yeah i i found it really fascinating and, and entrancing how it was done like this idea of like part way you know like like, like you know the the different parts appearing part way out of this like chalkboard and the, and, the, and the chalkboard was you know drawn on like the rest of the body and chalkboards are kind of recurring for cocteau as, as we kind of see in the beginning of Beauty yes. and the Beast as well. I don't know. Which I love so much. Like right. just drawing on the opening credits is just so Which, wonderful. And then it links wait. to that dialogue about being a childish story. It's just oh, it's That's everything not, everyone. That wasn't even the original. It was just like close-up shots of everyone in the cast was his original <laughs> intro. But he did that for the American audiences, and then that became the one that stuck. So oh, uh, it seems to be lost the uh, close-ups. He took a few days to shoot of Good. everyone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The chalkboard magic is much fuller. The Americans mm -hmm. know best, you know. <laughs> but yeah just like the, the kind of incremental reveal of it throughout uh, a blood of a poet was, was just kind of very fascinating you know like putting together of it me again in a very technical sense there's still a lot of the film that i feel like just kind of evades me that i, that I oh, don't yeah, yeah, yeah. understand in its entirety but it, it as a whole just as an experience it's very kind of enrapturing and very you know uh w wonderful to take in and it's got these interesting ebbs, ebbs and flows of like awe and, and tragedy uh, that you have with like the, the boy in, in the third segment and how that kind of connects into and flows over into the fourth one in this weird kind of like 
cynical way that that's you know very odd but it, it feels pointed but in a way that i can't connect to something distinct some, something clear that's a nice feeling i always like that feeling of being like if i really like spent some time of this like i could like really like work something out of this but i like the the film feels like it gives me the option of like or you can just not and just go with it and i and i, I just like that sometimes that's a, such a soothing was like being like yeah something here works but it's okay mm-hmm. and yet it moves we keep going yeah oh. uh, importantly i think like just as much as it is you know to like you know break down something critically and and, and point out all the things mm-hmm. that you could connect to or analyze it in a very textual manner just being able to express how it is emotionally effective and trying to articulate it that way without uh, an inherent logic behind it is is just as yeah. valuable in terms of for, uh, you know criticism and, and and you know praise for a film there it's not you know you don't necessarily need to explain it in in specific detail just being able to express I mean, the emotion i think sometimes gets across the intent better than than some kind of pedantic explanation to quote i mean as as calvin called in the modern day john cocteau um christopher nolan you know don't think it feel it uh quote tenor. <laughs> but i i do love like the use of symbolic imagery and i think just appreciating the image for what the mm. image is rather than as david says like investigating the image and needing to uh, intellectualize it uh, sometimes the image just exists and it's beautiful and it uh, has the illusory illusory connected connection between the afterlife and the real world and you're like okay but I don't have to think about all that I could just live it and uh, as Nolan says feel it yeah but that's the, the aestheticism point isn't it like the, the Oscar Wilde argument which obviously has its mm-hmm. own like flaws and things but sometimes it's beautiful just because it's beautiful and the symbols are beautiful because symbolic imagery is beautiful sometimes that the metaphor is maybe not an apt metaphor but it's a beautiful metaphor and the idea of like that art can be just artistic and that's one thing it can be in addition to things is is something that so few films get and that again beauty of the beast is so good at that of being like what if it was just wonderful and wondrous and enrapturing and what if cinematic beauty was enough and like for an hour and a half you're like yeah it is just enough isn't it like just to be beautiful and wonderful and transported that's all the film needs to be why don't we take a short break and come back with the beauty and the beast Tell as old as time, song oh, yeah. as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. You're not going to do the song again. I'm not a performing monkey. I will not sing on demand. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Here comes the Calvin with his thoughts, like always. Here comes the David with his takes. I'm just going to. Uh... Uh, send that to Jack, see if he can uh, make a deal. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, a beautiful start I've, to the segment. I've run out of things I know about the Disney movie that I've not watched in 20 years. Um, uh, it's still still a good movie, but I would I would wager an, no, inferior, an inferior movie. To, to what? Cocteau, oh, I've seen days. that. Which, uh, the more I watch, this might be the third time, I think is... Uh, possibly like the prominent fantasy movie the mm. the fantasy work I, I i really love it and um it it doesn't have any like false fantasy it doesn't betray its fantasy it respects it and uh takes a fairy tale and then cuts out the fairies and just does the the good shit oh yeah. particularly when you consider this time period as well there's a lot less fantasy filmmaking going on in- i wonder why what was happening in the time period I feel like there was something important that happened. Yeah, probably, just, probably just something getting this. in the way of fantastical thought. We'll get back to that with the next movie. Um, 
we're in the 40s now. Uh, Cocteau didn't make much during the 30s. He, he kind of went away and didn't really need to make films. He was doing uh, minor stage shows. Uh, most of them not very well received, but uh, 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 something brought him back. Um, and that was that, uh, that filmmaking was uh, one of the ways you could get around the censors. The, a lot of German censors in France uh, with them invading and uh, kind of taking up a lot of space there. And so a lot of the stage plays were very dictated by like the Germans that were there and uh, movie making though, you could, you could get away with a little bit. This feels really good. It's really, really good. Um, I, I mean, like all of us, I've watched it before. I've only watched it the one time before um, and really, really liked it and utterly, utterly, utterly loved it this mm -hmm. time. Um, just like really, really completely transcendent. Like it is, it's easily my favorite of his. So unless the one that I haven't seen is 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 better than this, but but I but I doubt that. Um, it's really interesting to me of like the treatment of fairy tales. We're so used to retellings of fairy tales, and um, it always goes back to this kind of like this grim fairy tale idea. Um, I mean, grim in both sense of like the brothers grim, and also that fairy tales be a bit grim. It's like you know those early ones; they're a bit like dark, blah blah. And I feel in the search for the kind of like adult fairy tale it kind of gets too caught up in the grit sometimes and loses the sense of wonder whereas this feels like dark mature it has like a freudian background it has like a psychosexual element to it but that never mm -hmm. overwhelms but it still has that sense of like whimsy and wonder and what i loved about it the most this time which i wrote about in my um, writer and letterboxd is there are these two kind of like sides to this film i feel the background is so ambiguous and so confusing and never explains anything in this like wonderful way of like well he's just got this glove and it just smokes and it just smokes because why not there's that these all these things that clearly have an origin and could be explained but the film will not explain them they are there to just be evocative but then the actual storyline in the front is just full of these binaries and full of these ultimatums it's just strict binary choice strict binary choice and it's like black and white fake morality that we're so key to fairy tales and seems so simplistic and is why so many fairy tales are unappealing and don't hold up under a modern lens but having that as the foreground to a complex and alluring backdrop just makes both halves of it work so well for me in a way that it's, I think is quite hard to articulate but it just works wonderfully on screen. Well the, the smoking glove is a wonderful example too because in the in the introduction, Cocteau literally asks us to kind of ignore yes. the inherent kind of fabrication or, or unbelievability of these qualities and to think like children, uh, as it kind of says there. And you know, the children just kind of accept that a glove can smoke, you know, will, will cause smoke for you know uh, when the character is feeling despair or you know or, or whatever the line is exactly. So there's this this wonderful introduction that I think. In, in concept could be all, you know, like, like really contrived that you're basically just saying, please audience, just suspend your disbelief a little bit harder for us, you know, for this film. But because of the way it's it's worded and this, and, and because of its sincerity, I think, you know, more than anything here, uh, it, it really lends itself to this, like, and again, and it feels very storybook-like, you know, it even ends with that line of, you know, he transitions into saying, you know, you know, we end with that, um, you know, the, the child's version of their own open sesame, this, you know, once upon a time. Uh, so, so really like digging in deep and committing fully to this idea of, of a, you know, kind of sincere, fanciful, you know, uh, transportive uh, idea of, of a fairy tale and, and rendering it in a cinematic format. 
and it also just works because it works of like to yeah. to speak in tautologies of the it, it makes this lovely thesis statement i think calvin picked up on this one of the things he wrote about it earlier of this sense of it makes you this deal at the beginning and then you kind of forget about it but the thing is what i liked about because i watched this on criterion channel and it, it loops over into an interview briefly afterwards um with um Tataru, and then it loops into the commentary track so i just accidentally because i was just at there typing away accidentally watched the beginning of the film again and just got so top of it and it's like oh i forgot that statement was at the start oh the film did do that actually i was completely brought up into it i was completely overwhelmed by it and i did experience that sort of childish whimsy and it was all involving I'm like ah that's why it works because it says a thing and then it just does it and like having just the, the cohesion to make a statement and be like and then we did it is wonderful i mean you hear a lot about um like writers like i came out of the intent to do this and it was it was failed etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah, i forget i forget what the book was i think dostoevsky of like writing the, the completely moral man and it's like oh i did not and never mind intent fails and this being like yeah intent works good job cocktail you're right. It's like a it's like a check that he cashes continuously, mm. and it, because he presents it to you, without that it wouldn't mean as much. But but because he presents it to you up front, you're you're waiting for that, and you're opening. I mean, the you know it's an invitation also to to mm. take the movie on its terms and to, and to really respect it and to have that uh, childlike infatuation that's uh, not concerned with the holes in the story or, or you know uh, nitpicking. Because uh, as adaptation, this work is just perfect. Because I'd like, if I was to make flaws with the film, it would be flaws with the tale of like, there are bits about the Beauty and the Peace story that are uncomfortable and will always be uncomfortable. And this one does a good job of like, towards the end, the way it deals with the transformation, I think is is, is really quite clever of like the, the swapping around of, of the characters and like making one bestial, one non-bestial kind of like makes that interesting point about like, it, it's never a literal ugliness. It's not like physiognomic being like, because like the the problem with the beauty and the beast tale has been like and now that i've seen that everyone be beautiful now you're allowed to be beautiful and therefore you can be beautiful and because it, it rushes the climax a little bit it doesn't quite feel like that and because she's off put by beast now having the face of someone she knows and is disappointed by it that's such a great panacea to that point like so nicely but because it is committed to it being the fairy tale, the slight Stockholm syndrome stuff that's uncomfortable, the slight physiognomics that's uncomfortable, like, oh yeah, that's the fairy tale. And you're showing me, you still can win me over into these stories, that there is still a core to this. There's the logical fairy tale that is still enduring and alluring. I, I think there's a lot as well that the film does to kind of undercut those more uncomfortable elements we associate with the text, you know, like the, the Stockholm stuff and stuff uh, and such, uh, but particularly the, the, the ugliness element, very, very intentionally, the beast is designed to be uh, utterly, you know, uh, you know, uh, luminous, like absolutely astonishing, you know, makeup work, uh, yeah. costuming, you know, in particular, uh, just from a design perspective. I think it's easy to forget as well that the idea of the beast in in terms of in, in this tale was not did not have a defined image, you know, up until this period mm. really, and initially. Initially, Cocteau wasn't going to go this, you know, more, uh, you know, uh, cat-like, dog-like kind of uh, animal route. He wanted to go with a like, like a stag. He, he was going to make it, a, you know, more like a stag. Um, but it just seemed, I guess, uh, too impractical. So, mm. so they went more like this. And they modeled the face after uh, Jean Maurice's dog, I believe, was, was what I read. <laughs> it's pretty but, cool. I mean, it's so beautiful that uh, yeah. Uh, famously, uh, Greta Garbo was watching a screening yeah. and 
and she'll uh, give me back the beast once he transformed. Because um, it's so gorgeous that uh, that even the actress seems disappointed by that transformation. Yeah, and, and there is definitely a bit of disappointment, as, as Steven said as well, not just from Bell, but from, from us as well, mm. where, where we're like, oh no, the, the beast design was just so beautiful. So I think that is... Uh, very deft in terms of undercutting that, you know, more uh, kind of like uncomfortable idea, that dichotomy of ugliness versus beauty, you know, inner beauty, whatever, you know, for the simple morality of the fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And and the other steps it takes to be more general in, in the overall story. One of the really great things that I, I think really makes Beauty and the Beast, you know, uh, just this kind of transcendent, you know, example of Cocteau's work is that it uses the story as just like a basic structure to mm. build the craft around entirely. You know, the narrative is is inherently simplistic and it just, he allows it to be that and makes the focus, you know, on, on a lot of the wider contexts and, and the, the art itself more so than the, the material. You know, he doesn't take extra steps to try and make it something more than it is and instead uses it as a vessel for for his artistry which i i, I hate myself for doing this um already but like i watched the amazon prime cinderella recently oh. um, uh. which is just dross like it's uh, absolute dross and it does that thing of the exactly opposite of what you're saying of being like let's modernize this tale and obviously there are bits in that story that feel Deeply, I hate saying things are old fashioned because you know it, it, it just like it's actually just homogenous views that have been taken on as canonized views. But these things are always wrong, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. They get canonized because of supremacist cultures. Um, but therefore, plurality of voices, let's make it seem much more democratic and open. And it's just like it just becomes this mess of just trying to do too much and pushing in all kinds of directions. It's been like, well, why even do the stories to begin with then? Like, let's just tell different stories then. Like, this story doesn't fit. And I agree. Let's just do something else. So rather than just being like, let's just update this for the modern era of being like, no, I'll take the story. And that's just going to be there. And I'm going to create wonder around it. Like, that's just going to be the central thing. And have arms coming out of walls and just like things opening up and like huge expanses and just the best set design it's what a fairy tale is about. They're about magic. Movies are about magic and wonder. I'm going to create the wonder. I'm going to create the fairy. I'm going to create the tale. I'm going to create the majesty. Right. Well, because when you think about it, like one of the things that always I kind of considered about the film and thought of like, what attracted Cocteau to this story in particular? Why did he want to make this film? Like, like he wanted to tell the story of Beauty and the Beast. Was that of particular importance? Does that reflect something in particular in his ideology can you see a similar thematic thread throughout his films and i'm i'm not entirely certain myself and so i think it you know for, for me at least it, it seems to be like it was more of a choice of what can i do with this what does this give me liberty to do how can i be expressive within this framework and in it in that sense it seemed to be the perfect vehicle for him certainly at that time I know it was brought to him. I know he didn't bring it to someone else. It was a, a story that was brought to him and uh, with some of the techniques that he was able to accomplish in it and uh, some of the things he wanted to do with the illusions. I know he was excited, but uh, I, I don't remember exactly why he took the project. Yeah, well, because everything I see about the film, you know, uh, from a historical sense, seems to document more about the craft itself, like how they made the costume, how they did these different tricks, you know, and, and less about the, the motivation and the reasonings behind uh, choices. To, to, 
pursuit aside, I know that Calvin's seen this movie. Um, but David, have you seen um, Donkey Skin, the Jacques Demy movie? <laughs> Not where I thought you were going. <laughs> I I've read about the comparison, so I know where you're going, but uh, not yet, not yet. It's so good. It's so unbelievably good. Um, as know, a fan I, of Cocteau, you need to watch it. I, I, I felt like really smart cinema person recently because I got the um, the Jacques Demy um, box set um, for Christmas, I think, because um, I love those two musicals that everyone loves because they're pretty much the greatest movies ever made. Um, and Emma, my partner, was just just kept saying to me she wanted to watch this film called Donkey Scan. I think it came over on TikTok because <laughs> I just described it. And she said, I want to watch this French incest movie. I'm like, well, that does sound like kind of thing I'd want to watch. I do also <laughs> want to watch the French incest movie. So she was just haranguing us to watch it. And a friend of ours had to come round to watch it with us. And we sat there, watched it, and all really, really enjoyed it. And the whole way through, I was being like, this is like really reminds me of Cocteau. Oh, that's Jean Marais, that's guy from Beauty of the Beast. And like, yeah, even like yeah. the way that he's like epaulets, like his shoulders are made to look like that. And there's a bit where a rose talks. I'm like, oh, that's, there's a bit like that. In um, in blood of the pattern. This is before everybody watches. I feel like it's like a bit like that of like a mouth moving around. I remember that. Um, and then there's the bit of like a glass kind of like stopping things. That in Orpheus as well of like cannot get through the barrier. I'm like, oh, I'm like, this feels like it. And then in the morning, I went downstairs, got out the Criterion booklet, and the, pretty much the entire piece is about how it's supposed to be this like illusion to kind of like ah. Oh, go me. Oh, yeah. I know that. Oh, I was just so proud of myself. Um, so, yeah, watch that film. It's so good. Watch you should watch it again once I've understood the illusions and what it's trying to reference because Donkey Skin is really special. What other movies do you have about a, a donkey that should scold? Uh, <laughs> and that's like, one of the, that, that's, that's a minor like point. Minutes yeah. <laughs> no one really cares about that. <laughs> but there's, there's something about like these older movies that were doing this. It feels like once Disney came in and kind of made their statements, mm. it almost seemed final in the culture for a while like we have like four pinocchios in these like five years around uh and then you want this, this one year? coming up on netflix yeah. yeah we have the guillermo del toro one and uh, uh one done in italy last year and yeah we have a disney one coming um but it doesn't need to be the final statement like we don't just need disney and then bullshit like cinderella um other people have also made beauty and the beast there's a yeah these uh, tales are as old as time yeah <laughs> uh the check <laughs> The Czech movie made by uh, Uri uh, Hurst, who was oh, I uh, watch that. It's incredible in the beast design, especially because it's very bird-like and uh, very sexual. <laughs> uh, so there are other approaches, and I kind of wish those just kept continuing. Like I wish it wasn't like Disney made Beauty and the Beast, and now that's a singular work. And uh, I, I think we need to get back to uh, recreating these stories and uh, cutting out the the Disney parts and, and making sure they still work. Yeah, less less sanitized because it's important to remember as well that these grim fairy tale, all these you know older fairy tales and stuff, like like Stephen said, they are grim to an extent. There is a darker element. There's a there's a greater uh, kind of pervasive broodingness to them, which is very prominent in this one in particular. I think there's this kind of emotional darkness that that hangs over the film, that has this sense of you know like like real tragedy to things, but you don't have you know, that kind of explicit, you know, pedantic explanation of things like you do with the, the nineteen ninety nine the Disney film where you've got the whole rose explanation, the background, everything. It it doesn't especially matter why the beast or how he was cursed to be this way yeah. in this in this film. You just you get there and you accept like it's you know, that's the case. Again, the idea you know, magic can only necessarily feel real in a film when you allow your audience the opportunity to suspend their disbelief yeah because magic shouldn't be explained that's the whole point of magic like the yeah, magic yes. is the magical it defies explanation so for it to be that way is just wonderful mm. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's yeah, the, the the film excels at that. you know, just and has all of these bizarre, you know, these oddities throughout. And again, like all the different things, like with the the horse that can just just he, he just suddenly has this horse. He says, you know, just go, just tell it where you want to go, and you go there. Or like the glove that helps, you know, you can teleport. Yeah. And, and I love how immediately the glove just makes the horse obsolete. Like he had the yes. glove the whole time, and that could have been the, the tactic, but it's now used so but yeah just like everyone's just so awed and inspired by like cocteau and it's 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 not very hard to see why no one's slick as cocteau no one's quick as cocteau no one's (laughs) necks as incredibly thick as cocteau's and there's no man in town half as manly perfect a pure paragon you can ask any tom dick or stanley they'll tell you whose team they're supposed to be on who plays darts like gaston and cocteau um who breaks hearts like cocteau thank you Stephen. <laughs> it took me a couple lines to see what was happening there, but then I got it. <laughs> I had to pick the part of the song that would actually be believable for a bit and then to see how long it would go. But yeah. It's true though, no one's as slick as Cocteau. No, no one's true. neck is no. as incredibly thick as Cocteau's. Cocteau's known for his incredibly thick neck. Where do we go from there? <laughs> <laughs> do we I move know. forward? We have I, a podcast of this yeah. movie before, by the way. So Yeah, so please. Yeah. Please check that out as well, our, our conversation on Beauty and the Beast there as well. Again, I, I agree with Stephen. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, unassailable. Just absolutely yeah. magic. The thickest neck. <laughs> <laughs> I actually got there this time. I, I think I was in love with it the last time. I was at 9 out of 10 and just pushed me over into the magic. Uh, throw me through the mirror world. I, I fucking love uh, the imagery here. Yeah, yeah. Few few cinematic renditions of just pure fantasy can come close. Like I'm, I'm like Wizard of Oz territory here as far as iconic, mm. transportive, you know, beautifully magical films. It's one of the best. I, I can't imagine a better fantasy movie anymore. I wonder what he follows it up with. Probably something like as like as mesmeric, as transcendent, as surreal, as wonderful, as majestic. Like, what is his next movie? The, the Eagle with Two Heads. I've film. never heard of that movie, Dan. What is that? Why has no one ever spoken about this film before? Ever? It's, it's interesting because it's it's like, if all of the qualities of Cocteau we've described so far are like dreamlike, magical, you know, visually inventive, this film is none of those things. No. It's... Actually, there's one scene that's like really visually inventive. It's, it's awesome of like her walking around Toy Town with her giant gun just looks incredible <laughs> yeah it's true a little I, kaiju I, moment i think awesome. i presented it the wrong way but what if you took like the uh stylistic tendency of Cocteau's own rule book and his uh form and his the way he shoots like that gliding classical style mm. and then you inverted it i think you'd end up with something like the, the eagle with the the two heads who uh was on the mountain what's the title I- uh, yeah, the the man who walked up the mountain and came back, or whatever that thing's called. Yeah. I don't even know the actual name for that joke. Um, man who walked out the window. Me. Yeah, that's it. Uncle Boone me lives, etc. Right. You know, one of those films. Um, the man who was first day. I don't know. Um, so, I was, I've started writing a thing about this, but I've not finished it yet. So you you'll get my unfiltered thoughts. And I and I was doing a bit of research around this because I was really fascinated by it um, of how divergent it was because this is a an ardently political film, yet 
has nothing at all to say about anything. It is full of so much politics, so much intersecting, confusing politics, to the extent that I don't think it knows what's going on. You've got this anarchist character, you've got a queen, you've got dissidents, you've got like, at some point I was like, oh, I get it. It's like the king has died and she's wearing a veil. It's like the continuation of the patriarchy, but it's not really about that. And then it's like, oh, this anarchist is coming to like break down the Republic. No, it's not really about that. It's just politics in this seems to be just like, it's there for turmoil. The politicization just creates turmoil and confusion is a maelstrom. So I was fascinated by that. And then it ends so weirdly with this statement that makes sense in the film. But you're like, what a weird thing to say, which is love is more powerful than politics. You're like, what? <laughs> so I, this sent me on a little spiral of being like, why did this happen? And um, it's so easy for people like us just did to look at Beauty and the Beast and go, what a transcendent masterpiece. One of the greatest movies, fantastic, fantastic. And then not think about it in its time period and how weird it was for that film to come out in its time period. And I'm like, oh yeah, actually, if you were filming Beauty and Beast at the end of the Second World War, what a strange movie to make. Like mm -hmm. this escapist, pure childish fantasy at a time where France specifically, utterly devastated, had been occupied, bad times. I, in the piece I'm gonna put up soon on Letterboxd, nothing more serious than that. Like for me, interesting comparison is like, the Ross Rossellini's War Trilogy, which I completely adore. So you've got one film like made illegally in um, fascist Italy. Then you've got Paisan about like, like strikes about um, against fascism and like togetherness. And then you've got the utterly devastating Germany Year Zero. These films that arise out of necessity of if film exists, then film exists to speak on this moment. And what a filmmakers if we are not to speak on this moment. And then Cocteau's like, yeah, I'm over here making Beauty and Beast movies and what? And you're like, what? And it turns out at the time, there was clear criticism of Cocteau for being apolitical. And that led me to more things. It turns out when Germany invaded France, Cocteau decided to be apolitical, which is a very strange time to decide to be apolitical. And if you look more, there's, I didn't have time to look fully, but like his relationship with the Nazi party, he is not Heidegger, he was not a Nazi. Um, I don't want to name drop Nazis and give them more like credit, I guess. Um, but a very famous, um, if we say Lenny Reifenstahl is Hitler's director, a very, very famous um, sculptor um, who was seen as Hitler's sculptor was a good friend of Cocteau's and convinced Cocteau that Hitler was a pacifist and a man of like great upstanding virtue was going to do good things to France. Cocteau was like, yeah, all right, fair enough. Um, which led him to write this great piece about how he should celebrate the sculptor. Um, it's... I, it gets really confusing. At some point, Cocteau was part of this like anti-anti-Semitism league, which is interesting. Like, and yes. then and then he joins the Nazis for a little bit or befriends a Nazi because Jean Marais was on one of the death lists of the Nazis. So he befriends a Nazi to get Jean Marais off of a death list and then starts being a Nazi for a while. So he did that for a little bit. But then he gets pulled back into the Nazis over here. And it just seems like, I was speaking to Emma about this. It's just so clear that Cocteau is just one of those right-wing things, just like, I just like art and art and politics should be separate. And this sculpture is beautiful. Stop making it about fascism, man. Like <laughs> I'm out here making movies. And this movie is just that. This movie is like politics, politics, politics. It's all so good. Everyone wants to talk about politics, blah, 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 kings and castles and revolutions. You know what matters? Love and escapism. <laughs> I don't trust the movie whatsoever, but I know you guys like it. <laughs> I like it though; it's no, good. No, I think that's I think that's wonderful, and I think it also demonstrates as well how complex people can be, even in mm. in such like a like in hindsight, you know, it should be politically black and white time, you know, there how and 
how the information could also be, you know, kind of confused and obfuscated. And if someone was not all that concerned, or certainly if someone, you know, like who was in Cocteau's position of privilege where they could mm. live in occupied France and probably not feel the effects of it as much as, you know, everyone else. And, and use it as an excuse to make more movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the fascist ideals there in his, you know, political, you know, uh, dealings or whatever he had whatever associations they were because again there's less information that seems out there historically people are, are, are less i don't know he's less documented at least in, yeah as far as the english language goes i don't know if there's any french documentation on it it, it, it seems again that homophobia comes up again it seems like yeah. there was such a, a suppression and it's it also it's worth noting down of i don't want to excuse cocteau but there are some there are some explanatory factors of like a troubled upbringing from his father dying by suicide at a young age, which had a huge impact on him and shook even like very privileged upbringing. Um, uh, you've got later like severe issues of opium and lots of like documented cases about he found it very difficult to extract fiction from reality. And I think his approach to art and politics very much shows that if he just wants to get lost in art over there, like little art boy in the corner, and this fight against fascism is getting in the way of that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to consider the the nuances of that because again, obviously, association with Nazis is always inherently awful, and that's a shocking thing to to learn about Cocteau. But what, you know, you see the a, a bit more of the logistics in his mind behind it, and why he was in that position, where and how much he was really involved. And again, which which seems to be like not, not as much like personally involved. Like like it's very confusing. Yeah. Again, it's 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 muddier than you know we usually consider these situations with, but yes, and and I think the Eagle with Two Heads is a is a great case that kind of demonstrates that because you're right, it is a film that uses political intrigue as a as a backdrop as a point of narrative, you know, uh, you know, you know, intrigue like narrative interest, but thematically, it's not concerned at all about that. It's very again indistinct it's very unattached word of it it's, it's a, a another case where the opening of the film asks you to kind of suspend disbelief a little bit yeah it talks about this being just like uh, a general kingdom a general you know uh, area not associated with one in particular um and so you don't necessarily even like you in order to pick up on like the time period or the location or whatever this place is it's just a very general you know uh, i guess probably what 18th century maybe 17th century you know european kingdom maybe a bit earlier i mean i thought that when watching donkey skin though as well and then at the end of donkey skin spoilers as a helicopter so like anything can happen <laughs> really so well no, no where's the helicopter no no helicopters here but where's my slime in the desert moment you know where's my where is where's my benwellisms where's was, my was, little rave it was interesting how much this this reminded me of other films um some some to come oh, and yeah. some to not in, in different dynamics there but the one i found most interesting that, that i was compelled by was actually a kind of odd comparison point uh i i was reminded of in terms of its uh um you know like like monarchical dealings like this idea and, and the relationship it kind of investigates between a, a kind of romance and then the mm -hmm. you know the, the structure of the the kingdom here and stuff and, and that idea with a, a a Lubitsch farce film it reminded me of it reminded me of a royal scandal from a couple years earlier which is a a a parody kind of thing he did uh with Otto Preminger about Catherine the Great 
and totally they couldn't be similar at all. But I did find a quote about uh, from um, Cocteau about uh, the the two-headed eagles here, uh, saying that he was following the example of Lubitsch uh, in terms of making the film. And he didn't say specifically about that film, but like just the fact that it had any connectivity to Lubitsch, I felt very validated in that, in that analysis there. That's interesting because like the one connection that I made, I couldn't find any kind of like um, any writing on, which is that there is a part of this movie that reminded me a lot of, um, of Misery, um, the Stephen King adaptation. <laughs> That's not well documented. I found, I found nothing to like connect the two. Well, but generally, there's a there right. is a bit that I did like was very much like when she's just like got this poet in the room and is like commanding him. I think she's brilliant, by the way. I keep forgetting what her name is. I think she's absolutely fabulous. Obviously, Jean Marais is great, but she is just stunning powerhouse performance that just like if the film works it's because of her. But there is a point where she's just like ruling after over him when he's got this bandaged leg. I'm like. Like, is this is this misery? Is she just gonna like bash this guy's legs open? I hope, I hope, I hope that she does. But last you know, time, it's a bit of misery. I I was also reminded of in terms of their romantic dynamic. I was reminded of the same kind of idea with uh, Sunset Boulevard. Interesting. Well, you're, okay, that's a lot classier than mine, but fine. I, yeah, yeah, but but this idea that they have this kind of, especially in the beginning when she's kind of like very like volatile towards him, but still very like desiring of him and and wanting mm. him. And how that relationship kind of develops, because again, the, the, the whole impetus for the film is essentially that he, Jean Marais, is a anarchist who breaks in to, to assassinate. Who has the face of the king. Yeah, yeah, and so, but and, and they end up developing this kind of interesting um, romance through that, that is also kind of like uh, undercutting this external plot that jean Reese was hired to to assassinate her you know for like, like that stuff is a mess that stuff is completely a mess mm -hmm. it's it's not as clear-cut but again it, i i kind of followed because i was like this is actually a lot like that lubage film because that's like a whole plot line as well there where there's you know it's her inner circle like plotting to use this lover that she has to like overthrow her effectively but to play Calvin here, I mean, I'm Calvin can play himself, I'm sure, but to play Calvin here is like the naysayer. Like, I think like it works. I'm presuming I've not seen the Lubitsch, but I'm like, I presume it works there because it's a fast comedy. It's played as comedy. Like the whole point yeah. is that it's, it doesn't make sense. Is kind of like, that's the joke. It's too complicated. Whereas this is not gleaning humor out of not making sense. It just doesn't really make sense. Well, in the Royal Scandal, the whole idea is that it's kind of an incompetent plot. Like the whole thing, everything about it is like, you know, taking a, a dig at these political mm. power structures and, yeah. and the relationships there and and all that. So, yeah, like like all, everything comes back to a punchline about that. But here, it's obviously it's all played as you know, like melodrama and, tra and tragedy. I'd sure rather watch that movie. Yeah, it, <laughs> I'm so cleanly in between you two here. Like, but there are two bits about it that I just can't not just love. One, Jean Marais' character reading out bits of Hamlet and reading the character names and the mm -hmm. stage directions is just innately hilarious. It's like it's Polonius good. hides behind curtains. It's just absolutely brilliant. And just the audacity of Jean Cocteau releasing two films in a row where Jean Marais plays this exact and ultra specific archetype. A person that technically plays two characters, both of which have a romantic connection to the female lead. What an utterly specific typecasting to I, be in two movies in a row doing exactly that. Amazing. I, I hope you guys like Jean Marais, by the way, because Mm, I do. He's in Donkey Skin. He he's in every cocktail movie except for Blood of a Poet. 
he's the muse he's the muse you know they're yeah. together were they really? yes yeah yeah, yeah 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 you know what i i kind of assumed that i i figured but i didn't want to like know for sure say for sure you know oh, i'm sorry I didn't now know you about know. Recent. uh yeah so but no that makes perfect sense obviously duh <laughs> but no i i actually really enjoyed the eagle with two heads in that i found the the narrative of it you know compelling all the way through i, I like the political intrigue of it that it had going on as well as this melancholic you know like adoration still this tone about love and relationships that it kind of maintained throughout and of course the the you know poetic rendering of it throughout i thought there was some very beautiful you know cinematography despite yeah, the, the lack of flashiness that that we usually might associate with the other cocteau films in particular uh, especially that that last scene the, the deaths and how they're filmed they were filmed in this very you know kind of kind of beautiful like distant kind of way you know they had this great movement I, to it i think at its best it's got a swagger to it i actually i think i liked the first half of the film a lot more than the second half of it so i, I had to watch it truncatedly because of like working realities and the first mm -hmm. half of it, i was like this is really good i'm really enjoying this because it, it has a real swagger to it and like the bits when she's holding her guns it actually reminds me of like yugos lanthimos is the favorite of that like the idea of like this like period drama it's a little bit hardcore she's really good when it's more kind of like that dynamic of like flipping power dynamics and being interesting and bold i really really enjoyed it her performance brings so much and then the second half just really badly i still like it but the second half just became the just like mess of just like conversations and communications and stuff and just boof, gone more confusing than blood of a poet because it just felt like i don't know if anyone knows it's that's like no one really knows what's going on here this has no purpose beyond confusing plot stuff You know, I wish I could contest that because I feel I feel like in the moment I I understood it fully through, but now like a few days removed from it, a lot of the film has left me as much because it, th thematically there's a lot less there except yeah. for about that main idea of love. You know, is, is more powerful than, than politics. That's like the thesis of this. I <laughs> yeah, say. such a nonsense I, idea. <laughs> but I feel it, and I feel the film, and I feel like it you does do? a good job at, at expressing it. Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, man, love's more important than politics, man. You know, I, I, I wouldn't like, even say more important. It, it's just more powerful. I, the the way it expresses is, I get this kind of forlorn sense of love. This, you know, you this know? kind of. <laughs> Imagine I, there's no politics. It's easy if you try. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I enjoyed the film, but I, I can see why it's forgotten, certainly. What film? <laughs> Precisely. Should we take a break and come back and rank these then? I know, or, or can yeah. we just do it real quick? Unless Calvin wants to quickly give his takedown of this movie, because Calvin does not like this movie. I don't know. It, it started as a cocktail play in the early 40s, 43, and it's based on that, and it's just state of play. I, I don't think it... Yeah. I think I the agree. shooting is very nice. I think it cocktail can't shoot a bad scene here uh it's gorgeous and uh actors are good of course the queen and uh and uh her um anarchist her anarchist yes yeah, thank you her anarchist who slips in every queen has their anarchist i like the uh kind of juxtaposition between these two ideologies mm. that they both have but i don't feel like it takes it anywhere i feel it like it's wooden hands. extremely wooden movie for me like emotionally i didn't feel anything i'm not moved by it but I see yeah. why David likes it, and I like the shooting of it. So, uh, still, just a five out of ten. I I respect it. I don't care for it much. 
I, I agree, but I'm a bit kinder to it than you are. It actually, the other cocktail work that I'm familiar with, because I reviewed it for the website, is um, The Human Voice, the play that has been yeah, adapted a few times. I, I reviewed right. the um, Pedro Almodovar take of it, which is a wonderful like monologue. And when she was speaking, the, the, for me, actually, the best bit of the film was when he couldn't talk and she was just speaking, 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 speaking. And it reminded me of how much I loved that feminine-driven monologue in The Human Voice. More of that, please. Um, less of the nonsense about yeah man love i don't know if i need like cocktail adapting his own place but we'll see how things go as we develop i, I think mm. i'm more interested in his uh orphic movies and his yeah. uh and his, his fables so we'll see if that changes he speaks so well through the, the the physicality of cinema of like this is a film because it has to be a film to see him do something that's like well actually this will be better on one of your other diversions is is, is yeah. somewhat disappointing well we'll be right back we'll do our rankings here Bad luck podcasting, or Looney Boy, we're <laughs> back with the Twin Geeks. <laughs> I accidentally sent our uh, a Zoom link in a, a private chat that was uh, about something else. And a Not Safe for Work channel in a Discord that has nothing to do with Yeah, imagine Discord. if you were in a channel called Not Safe for Work and someone just drops a Zoom link. <laughs> <laughs> what, are you, no. what kind of Zoom is it? <laughs> You're like, I am not going there. There's no pretext except me wanting uh, to find an uncensored someone version asks of the movie. for a vaguely pornographic film and then drops a Zoom link. <laughs> oh, chaos vibes, love it. Uh, bad luck ranking. Um, we have uh, a few loony movies to rank today. Uh, yeah. Very loony. Uh, I think it's pretty clear where these fit in. I don't think we have much guesswork to do. I think all three of us might agree exactly on the ranking. Do we? I don't know if David I think does. So. I think he will. I think he will. Okay. Um, let's, so, let's see. Let's, uh, let's go from the top. How about that? Yeah. Uh, Blood of the Poet. Let's put it in last place. Also first place. I was thinking middle, but yeah. Last okay, let's, let's leave it in the middle for now. Yeah. Um, right. I feel like it could end up there anyway. I was, yeah. I was thinking second from the top. Just okay. Yeah, but yeah, fine. I want to go from at second from the bottom myself, but uh, oh, I, I a lot of tops and bottoms in the not safe for work <laughs> Zoom chat. Yeah. <laughs> it's a powerful bottom. Yeah, uh, Power Bottom is uh, okay. you uh, set him up. Yeah. <laughs> so I set him up, you knock him down. Thank you very um, much. I, I love it. I, I love the, uh, like you say, it's it's not quite poetry. It has elements of poetry in it, and it's really stunning first work that, uh, as you guys said, uh, complements like the Melier uh, style pretty well. Oh, it's just an, an outstanding film. So good. So interesting. Um, yeah. And I think it was the first cocktail film that I saw. So there you go. Was this first or is it his first that we're covering? I, I can't remember this. It's, it's, okay. it's his first film film. I think he did a short beforehand. I could be incorrect okay. of like him reading stuff out. He did a later short about him talking about the year 2000 or something. Um, we, but we yeah, should, this is his first film. We should clarify that we're not doing shorts. Anything shorter than Sherlock Jr. I think David and I have clarified <laughs> is not a feature length. That's that's our bar of a great feature that, that establishes the length. Yeah. Again, Sherlock Jr. Again, in the short conversation of greatest films ever made. Mm -hmm. 100%. And, and like Sherlock Jr., this is a nice brief length, 50 minutes. Very wonderful. Yeah. That's, that's something definitely in its favor. An underrated always. length for movies. I reckon the just under the hour yeah. can be just fine. Especially for like surrealist experimental stuff. Like you don't want it to be longer than that if it's not going to be like fully like narrative work. You're like, yeah, this yeah. is exactly what you want. I just so. looked. I have uh, everything everywhere all at once. Uh, two hours tonight. Um, Title also takes you two hours to say, so it's 
naturally. Yeah, like... well, that's interesting. I, I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about that one. Kind of uh, interested to see it. So. Yeah. Review I coming Monday. I do not know what that film is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I offered it to Stephen, and then he was like, "Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm taking it back." <laughs> yeah, I genuinely have no idea what it is. I've been out of the loop a little bit. I was like, "That's just words." There's um, uh, Michelle Yeoh in it, so that, that should be good. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess we'll find out. Well, so that, that's our first our first placement. The yeah. Okay. Where are we putting Sherlock Jr.? <laughs> above Love of Above, above okay. Clifford. For above sure. Clifford. <laughs> hey, intertextuality. Uh, Where's Tony Red going? I think it's pretty clear where we put Beauty and the Beast after we all said it's the best fantasy film ever uh, made. Yeah, but, uh, there's, yeah, there's just literally no question. Just one of the best, you know, films of that decade. One of the best films mm-hmm. ever. Certainly one of the best fantasy films. Maybe the best fantasy film period uh if if anything like if, if there's anything waiting to surpass this uh i i'm amazing there's, there's, that'll be there's, incredible. Isn't. Yeah. I, I i don't think it could be possible i just literally don't think there's anything else waiting for us better than this this is number one it's staying number one it's not going anywhere i want to see orpheus but i agree yeah orpheus is very good but is this it? is this is incredible yeah 100%. so do we have our one two heads equal two heads where the eagle within. Where are you guys feeling? Two-headed eagle, eagle with two heads. I think it should be a nice uh, second place movie. No, it, it, should, it should go at the bottom. Obviously. This is the easiest third place ever. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, you do agree. <laughs> like, it's not as good as the blood of a poet. In in some it's way, I I I felt like blood of a poet dropped more for me personally in the second half than this did for me. But also, I'm. I'm having a harder recollection with this one, but I remember being in, engaged just more. And I'm also just more inclined to, to narratives on like a personal level. I'm just, I'm entrenched in that way. You You're know, more of just... a love man than a politics man. Yeah, 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 you get it. But no, I will, I will concede that one of these films is certainly more impressive and more, you know, exemplary than, than the other. Um, I was pleasantly surprised with how much the Eagle of Two Heads worked for me despite its non-magical qualities. It was nice to see, oh, Cocteau can just be a really great filmmaker as well, just, you know, straight, you know, telling a good story and, and gripping me with, you know, the his flourishes and, you know, performances and such, just being a good director. But, yeah, and especially for just considering how Cocteau-y the, the films are as well, there's, there's no question that Blood of a Poet would, you know, uh, kind of stand out above eagle two heads there and then obviously calvin's diminishing opinion weighs in yeah. as well so i, I watched it on youtube by the way where the uh dialogues were not tracking properly with the subtitles um so <laughs> oh, i think I a lot that. of my diminishing interest as the movie played out was really it's hard to follow hard for me to I track did, i did have some terrible subtitles on the one i watched too because okay. like it was because the then... subtitles would hop around the screen they would move like up or down a bit depending on like who was talking like if it was in quick succession oh yeah and like the lines would disappear off the screen just basically as soon as people were done talking yes there was nothing happening and that made it a bit of an adjustment to like like i i had to like, kind of like sit there and like really pay attention i'm like I, I have to read every single word as fast as possible and you know it, after a while, it didn't bother me anymore. But initially, I was like, oh, my God, these are terrible. <laughs> I will say that I think I watched the same version. The subtitling was very good, though, because at one point it um, it picked up a point of French translation that would not be clear 
um, because um, in in France they use a an informal and formal usage of the word you, um, and there is a point where um, Jean Marais specifically says tu rather than vous, and it put you and then it put two in brackets afterwards to make that clear, which I thought was just very clever subtitling of like, you cannot just convey that with just an English translation. So that was good. Good subtitling. My, mine may really? have been significantly worse then because mine had bits of dialogue that weren't even there. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was missing large parts of dialogue and speech. It, it's one of those things where you don't appreciate that uh, subtitles are an art form in and of themselves. You know, they're very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and you don't know, you don't appreciate how much effort and how much kind of you know personal translation, you know, and such goes into it, and and how important that craft is until you see a bad rendition of it. Yes. It's not done fully right, and then you're like, oh, I'm I'm feeling very alienated here, and it's not the movie's fault. So number three. Yeah, 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 I, I, yeah. There's not too much a question of it. It's, it's mostly just personal, like you know. I like that a, you like a little it. A bit of personal appeal. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's not a film I'm gonna outwardly recommend. Like I, I would definitely more outwardly recommend Blood of a Toad. Yes. Oh yeah. So um, I, w- I wouldn't recommend it at all. So. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, for me, just pretty middling. Good filmmaking. I mm-hmm. I just love politics that much. Love and politics are the same thing. Yeah, I, don't know, I, I like the, the political, you know, discourse is kind of intrigue. I'm, I'm totally down with that kind of thing as a narrative thread. But, you know, if that's not everyone's cup of tea, then that's perfectly fine, too. Again, the film doesn't make many bold statements out, outside of that. So it, had yeah, it some makes very, one bold statement, and it's very bold. It had some very direct, personal David appeals, and that was surprising, as well as just general, uh, you know, a deafness of Cocteau as a director. All yeah. Yeah, very great. Okay. But it's a safe space here. You're allowed to like the movie. It's fine. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, no, no, we're no, happy for, for you. For my third defense of this movie. <laughs> I'm really happy for you. The Chewbacca defense, go. <laughs> no, I'm ha- happy with this placement. Happy to move on to next week and see the, the next three that we have to look forward to. Will you be happy when it stays in less? Maybe. Hey, it might not. I... There's one, there's one miss because oh. I've seen two of the next three. Um, as I think is David. Um, I've, and there I've was... only seen one. Oh, oh also, oh, what the, I still have the, the last. Test... I still have the last Orpheus film to see. I won't seen... spoil the Testament of Orpheus, but it's kind of spoiled in the title. Um, doesn't go great for our boy. And then there's other movie which I still cannot tell you what it is called. Les Enfants Terribles, or is it oh god, no, no, because he wrote he wrote. Um, Les Enfants Terribles is is a Cocteau work, a very very famous Cocteau novel. And this is Les Adults Terribles or Le Perron Terribles? That, yeah, that's what it is. So excuse me for, for, for confusing those. <laughs> so I, I presume it's in dialogue with his novel then, I would presume. Uh, have you read the novel? Because that, that would help no. us. No, I, maybe, maybe I will. Maybe, I'll remember, maybe, maybe that's what I'll do. I'll read a novel. Well, hopefully okay. it's not as like, terrible as uh, The Two-Headed Eagle. <laughs> We've moved on, Calvin. We've moved on. <laughs> All right, well, now we're to the plugging section of the podcast. Do you guys want to uh, tell everybody what we've got going on or what things they need to listen to? Nope, this is the no. only show that you <laughs> here. This is the only Twin Geeks-related content for you guys anymore. That's it till next week. Yeah, I'll recommend um, Hip Hops and Noise Raps, um, which is the show that Calvin and Kevin do about sounds they enjoy. We'll do the, we'll do the Grammys. Uh, that will be our next one. So that's coming next week. 
Oh. All right, that, that should be interesting. Why do you say that? Because spoiling things are doing the Oscars. Um, so if you want to hear um, Vaughn and I go through every Oscar category and what we think will win, we'll make a prediction for each of them, which, and we we committed to not pre-preparing, so they're all off-the-cuff <laughs> predictions. And then when you reflect back on them being completely sporadic, again, the thing I keep saying is I picked... Um, Belfast for nothing. <laughs> I think I picked Coda for nothing. And then, like, look at my like, not my bit. Oh no, I picked Coda for one thing. Um, for Best you picture. Guess what? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I hate that I'm now in a position. I know that you don't really care about the Oscars, David. I'm sorry. Um, no, no, no I, I, I do care about the Oscars, but in a in a kind of like gamification way, like in terms okay. of like any any like again. Uh, so that's why I'm rooting for West Side Story because I think it'll be hilarious. If West Side Story wins Best Picture for the second time in history, that would be great. That, that would just—that's funny to me. I love—I mm. love the humorous of that. But I hate reason. that I'm now in the position of I actively don't want a cute little film to win. Like it's this endearing, yeah. cute little movie, and I'm just like, oh, I'll be so annoyed if this cute little movie wins Best Picture. And I like quite a bit. Such a, I like it. It's good. I enjoy the movie, but I want it to win. Actually, like, love I'm, it. <laughs> yeah, it makes me feel really elitist and horrible, but I just, I just am, I guess. Um, unfortunately, we released our, we recorded our podcast before. Um, well, actually, you'll hear me say that I left watching the Baftas to go recording, so that means I didn't get to watch a thing that happened at the Baftas. Um, so, uh, yeah, that doesn't go mental in the podcast. It power would have been obviously the power of the Baftas is a, is a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, that's the thing. We rank monsters around here. Um, yeah, I just King of the monsters. To your guys' episode, uh, your most recent episode this morning. Great episode. Uh, I liked it as a kind of culmination of everything being built up. Although you did mention that you left out one film that because well, we were going to do that with you we were going to at some point we we're going to get you on to talk to do the king kong movies and then we never got around to it so we we need to plug that gap yeah plug that jack that gap that I'm, I'm around i never went anywhere <laughs> we should have you on for the next one or the one after as soon as yeah. you're ready to do it we'd love let to have me know you, so. let me know just just we'll make it happen i'll be king on kong and king then kong. king kong escapes okay <laughs> Then uh, we have a uh, daydream cast. I don't know what's up for them next. I haven't, I haven't checked in with them in a bit. So. I I remember. I, I was told, but then I've forgotten. Okay. <laughs> I, Very... I bet I, I bet I can look it up though. But listen to the podcast. It'll be more memorable than. Really, <sighs> they're doing such a great job. They are. It's really good. It's really really good. Really I, love I only need to have another there. podcast where I just talk about my insatiable love for Murph. But yeah, we know no, it I, heard, I heard that at the end. Just 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 overflowing love just, of Murph at the end of the. Just great. Cast there, which I, like I hope he's lot. flattered by. Like him a lot. Very, very long list of reasons to like. Yeah. Sure. But they'll be covering a video game. So. Yes. Is is that everyone? I always forget. I feel like uh, there's the modern cast as well. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't let that get you. Um, choose Todd coming soon. With uh, is are we doing something else with that, or is it just up to Todd? Is it? Definitely obtuse Todd. Okay. <laughs> Maybe something else, but I think that's something else okay. we're using to for Freaky Farley more. But we would have oh, watched something okay. else in preparation for obtuse Todd. But God, this is what a confusing set of words. But that something <laughs> else is actually more in preparation for Freaky Farley than it is oh, for obtuse Todd. Okay. None of us have seen obtuse Todd yet. Maybe maybe Matt has, um, and we don't really know what it is. It's obtuse. Yeah. Oh, that sounds quite fascinating. Interesting to, to explore something you guys have never heard of. Todd never, the Obscure. Yeah. 
All right, well, tune in, everyone, for all of those things coming up very soon. And Say the line, do the speech, do the speech that you do. Well, oh, I, am I still doing it? I guess that's right. Do the oh, speech. Okay. We need the speech. Um, do the speech. Say the line. Say the line. Well, join, what was it? It's been so long. Join us next time for Out another conversation on. Oh, wow. Is that what you're looking for? No, because it was it is well for, for those of us that can't see the podcast like I can. David's sitting in front of an out of the past <laughs> poster, and um, he said it was so long ago. So I said humorously, "Out of the past," because the good the, visual podcast, the some really good I visual see. humor. Yeah, it would be helpful if this was a visual format for it. It would not for our latest <laughs> reviews, retrospectives, features, and classic and contemporary cinema, something like that. Yeah. Leave a review and rating. And something about traffic accidents. <laughs> Damn it, I was just loading that up. <laughs> you can't have it for me. I was just typing in Gueron into my search bar. So yeah, we shouldn't want <laughs> other planets, but make Earth a place free of wars and traffic accidents. And thanks to Jack Davenport. conversations and I post them online for entertainment it's nice to know at least you listen to the show because it's quite the possibility that nobody is listening to me in this modern world things have changed everybody's entertaining who's being entertained thank you for listening Mine out of all the voices.